Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is the podcast all about taking a bigger perspective of life on earth. The show where I attempt to get out of the day-to-day or even the second-to-second highly spinning high technology world we live in and try to step back and gain some clarity by seeing the bigger picture. I talk with influential business people, not-for-profit leaders, activists, philosophers, and my guest today is pretty much all of those things, but he also happens to be one of the world's greatest surfers. And the other thing about this show is I try to keep all of these conversations in person. It's a goal of mine to keep as many of these in person as I can. You know, most podcasts these days are moving to video calls, and, and that's fine. I just feel there's so much more communication and energy exchange that happens in person. So that's what I'm trying to do. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I want to acknowledge this podcast is recorded on Bunjalung land, and I'd like to pay my respects to members of the Bunjalung community and First Nations people all around Australia and the world. And I want to make a quick announcement. So I mentioned at the start of last episode that next month I'm running in the Tekina Trail, which is an ultra marathon through the Tekina or Tarkine region in northwest Tasmania. Now, look, this is one of the most ancient, pristine rainforests on Earth. It's home to a variety of endangered and critically endangered species, and it's under threat. In fact, it's already being locked and has been for some time now, and over 70% of it is planned for future logging. This isn't just plantation timber, this includes native old growth. Now, the time is now. This event is coming to a head. In fact, this event has already had access denied by the forestry company to run it, even though the trail that we'll be running is nowhere near any logging activity. But as a permit holder for the land, the logging company is able to dictate what we do as runners. Now, we will still be running. The event is still going ahead in some way, shape or form. And in fact, this whole thing has raised quite a lot of media attention and discussion, particularly locally in Tasmania. And really, that's exactly what we want to be doing. That's the whole point, is raising awareness and conversation of what's happening. So now, more than ever, we need support and we need people to join the conversation. So what can you do? First, get educated and inspired about what's going on. And there's a great way to do this. There's a fantastic short film from Patagonia that they made a couple of years ago, um, which I will link to in my Instagram bio. It's like 37 minutes long and it's super engaging. You will love it. Secondly, please, if you can, donate to the event. The whole point of us going and running is to raise funds for this cause, for the Bob Brown Foundation, who are on the ground doing the hard work. It is not an easy job, but I'm so grateful that there are people out there standing up to protect these wild places. And if you are too, please, if you can, head to the link in my Instagram bio if you want to donate to my page or any of the other runners. It doesn't matter. It's all going to the same place um, to protect. All proceeds will be going to protect the Tekina region. Okay, my guest today. He really needs no introduction, but um, it's such a fantastic story and such a great conversation we had. So as a young adult, he was one of the best young surfers in the world. 
And really, he had the world at his fingertips. He was going to be one of the great competitive surfers full of sponsorships and prize money and all that sort of stuff. And at a relatively young age, he stepped away from competitive surfing or that whole circuit. He describes how he kept seeing how something so simple, wonderful and therapeutic that surfing was, was being complicated with money and fame and competition. So he forged a different path and became one of the first really well-known free surfers, which he describes as being let out of a box and how he was able to try different boards and go to unusual places and be creative with his endeavor. And really, isn't that such a synonym for our current world? Isn't it a great example of an activity that started as a creative and free-spirited endeavor that fell victim to commercialization and standardization. So then, after as a young free surfer, he then traveled around the world and saw firsthand the environmental changes and destruction year on year from human activity. Motivated to do something, he started his own not-for-profit called Surfers for Cetaceans, focused on conservation of whales, dolphins, and all sorts of marine mammals. And his environmental activism really grew. He was involved in a whole bunch of documentaries, including The Cove. He did a series of um, adventures, raising awareness for particular causes in different parts around the world, and much more. And now, all of that stuff alone would have been more than enough for us to hold a really powerful and meaningful conversation. But the thing about this guest is that through all of that, he just just like he broke out of that commercialized surfing box, he seems to have also have broken out of this human-centered world that we put ourselves in. He lives at the whim of the weather and the seasons and nature. In this conversation, he shares his perspective on how we're all focused on human activity all the time. We're missing so much of what else is going on around us. He shares some unbelievable stories and experiences he's had with creatures in the ocean honestly they will blow your mind hearing them it was a wide-ranging very fun conversation on his perspectives his experiences the state of the world much more he's now a global surfing ambassador for patagonia he's a public speaker if the surf's not any good Uh, he runs his own podcast with his partner lauren called the water people podcast which i highly recommend of course, I'm speaking of none other than Dave Rastovich. Wait, should we do it? Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I won't need any more of this stuff. <laughs> um, How's this combo? Is it good, this tea? It's good, man. I'm enjoying it. Lemongrass and spearmint. Mm, I can't really taste the spearmint, but maybe that was the honey I put in. Yeah. Can you, ta- can you yeah. taste the spearmint? Yeah. You can? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely there. Like at the end, maybe I feel it a little bit. A little bit it's like a bit cooler. Or that, yeah. You know, that icy-ish feeling yes. you get when you, if you drink water after mint? Yes. Yes. That feeling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. After you brush your teeth, you have a glass of cold water? Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of that. It hurts, yeah. There's a bit of that. Yeah. All right, sweet. Um, we'll just kick in, hey? Sure, this is good. This is Sounds good. good. This yeah. is good. Um, Dave, thanks so much for being on the show. 
Thanks for having me. And thank you for having me in your house. <laughs> for allowing me to invite Thanks myself for in. for letting me have you yeah. here. <laughs> uh, it's, and it's a beautiful secluded spot on a gently raining day. We were just saying how we've either had torrential rain or extended periods of drought. So to have a nice gentle rain is actually really beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Definitely. It's funny, isn't it? Like it's, it's the, the beginning of the year, the middle of summer. And I feel like perhaps every summer will be measured by last year's summer. Yes. Know, the last summer and the, the months of smoke and just the, the drama of it, the deep drama of it. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. This being the first summer after that one, yes, I feel like it's we're all. I've had a lot of conversations with friends anyway that and strangers that have been bouncing back to that summer and just like oh, thinking about how it felt exactly this day last year. Oh yeah, the orange skies, yeah. the hazy smoke. Yeah, it was brutal. It was yeah. absolutely brutal. <clears throat> yeah, so it's, it is. It's nice to have something in the middle. Rather than at the radical extreme end, totally, of yeah, the spectrum, yeah, so just anything that's not extreme right now feels <laughs> nice, <laughs> which is interesting because that goes against a lot of my preferences in life. I actually <laughs> really prefer the deep end of things, yes, or the really silly light end of things. Um, you know, like for example, Lauren can't stand how much I laugh at fart jokes in movies, <laughs> but I just do that. I just lose it. I really, really find them funny. And then, but then also, I can't. Re- I'm not the biggest fan of small talk. I really love to have proper conversations with people. Yeah, and dive in the deep end with things. I'll make sure to jump between fart jokes and yeah. deep and meaningful. <laughs> it will be sweet. So, there is something intrinsically for, like I've got a two-year-old and she laughs at farts. And she can barely talk, so there's something intrinsically yeah. funny about farts. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't end there either. I have I have a, an older couple of friends who, in their late seventies, say that actually they get funnier because they start surprising you. You don't know that it's you that's doing them. They <laughs> yes. just you hear them and mystery farts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, like, yeah, we started at the bottom. We can only go up. We from can only go up from here. Let's yeah. let's let's get this thing back on track and quickly. <laughs> Um, no, so the inspiration behind the show is the overview effect, which is this, um, this experience that astronauts describe. They go up into space. They're very scientific, rational, you know, safety-oriented people, and then they, they look back on Earth and they have this profound kind of sense of awe and connection and wonder with our world and our planet. And I just really love that concept. And so I like to start there and ask, have you had a moment in your life either a single experience or a period of time or some, something that has kind of shaped the way that you see the world and interact with the world? It's a great question and a great focal area and point. Um, so, yeah, wow, thanks for <laughs> thinking I would have anything to say that could <laughs> bounce off of that. Um, and I would have to say that a series of experiences in the ocean with other mammals other marine mammals cetaceans the order of cetacea dolphins whales and porpoises that through a, a probably a five six year period a series of encounters 
even longer actually now that I think of it much longer than just those few years um, but encounters with those animals ha- has radically opened my um, ideas my mind my understanding of clear lines in life where you think this is how things work up to this point and anything beyond this point or this experience is maybe just imagined or you, you in your mind it's a shift of your perception or something that doesn't actually things like that don't mm. actually happen so the first example of that is for years when i was in my early 20s i was trying to figure out how to um work with the opportunities and the the skill set i had at that time which was i'm a professional surfer i don't compete so i've got all the time in the world i'm sponsored by um, surfing industry companies a handful of them to basically use their gear uh, you know do r&d with surfboard design wetsuits the 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 fundamental stuff in surfing Mm. um and then you know they use my image to sell their stuff you know basically that was my life and and it was a great time and everything but it was very shallow very hollow and so in my travels i kept finding that as i would return back to places every year i would quite easily see that there were less fish in the ocean Mm. there you couldn't go dive and catch some fish between surf sessions anymore that was gone wow Uh, or you go back to a place and everything upstream from a local river was now toxic so if you surfed when that area had rainfall you'd get ear nose and throat infections and all the local surfers were getting sick all the time wow so it was very clear that we were living in a changing world radically changing every year season to season and that it was all us doing that. It was me flying there, me participating in that place as well. Mm. Um, but that surfers were canaries in the coal mine. We were often being the ones sick or uh, able to report back to the rest of society uh, what's happening when everything we do on land meets the ocean or everything we do out to sea meets the shore. Yeah. So fishing, all that sort of stuff. So... I wanted to do something about that and um, I really started to get some schooling from people like Captain Paul Watson from the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, another great friend in this area, Howie Cook. He's an artist, a long-time artist, activist, amazing man who really schooled me on um, different things that were happening around the world with dolphins and whales specifically. And so... Um, so I, I finally, after a few years, I finally decided to create a website and create an, a small NGO and try and put a spotlight on cetacean issues. And so at that time, I was really popular in Japan for surfing stuff and some Japanese people had turned me on to the um, dolphin drives that were happening in Taiji Cove mm. in um, the Wakayama prefecture and the inhumane nature of it, the industrialized nature of it. They weren't traditional kills and stuff like that. And that no Japanese surfers really knew about it. And even further, people were eating the meat and no one knew about the toxins in the meat um, oh. and the deadly nature of that. In fact, they were, sell- they were giving it to school children um, as part of a, a subsidized lunch program. So some pretty, um, excuse me, some pretty trippy stuff that somehow I knew, but my friends in Japan didn't know about. So I wanted to do something about that, and I have lots of surf media friends and me and friends uh, in the industry. So we're able to talk to each other on a large scale quite yep. easily. Yep. 
So my idea was to really um, focus on that issue and then lots of other issues like that around the world where surfers were right next to the fishes and the other coastal people that were dealing with issues like overfishing or inhumane practices like that drive. So anyway, it's a bit of a long way to get to it, but, but all of that took a couple years for me to get going and to be overt with and talk with uh, openly and publicly. The day I did it, the day I registered it all with Howie, my friend, um, and we put out like press release sort of stuff, just information through all of our channels. It was, I think it was like two days later, I was surfing just down the coast here near Yamba at a little reef break. And uh, I was sitting out in the lineup with one other guy and we came over this little swell, an unbroken swell, and in the face of the next swell, so generally around here the waves are about 10 seconds apart. Mm. So in the face of the next swell is a big tiger shark and its fins are down and it's arched like Whoa. back. It's like, it's stoked. It's coming straight at us at full speed on this swell. Oh my God. And, uh, and coming in hot, basically. <laughs> my friend that was with me um, shit his pants and was like, that's a fucking shark. And literally, as he said, the last word shark, um, <laughs> I kind of laughed and said, but that's a dolphin. And this bottlenose came out of right field. So on the right of me, came out of nowhere and T-boned the shark away from me and my buddy who was already turning and paddling. I was kind of frozen, Um, but it just T-boned the shark away from us and uh, and pushed it away. And as it did that, because it was in the face of the wave coming out, it could see everything perfectly clearly, like it's in a glass box. And, And then the wave goes under us and we watch the two of them fly down the line past us with the dolphin just pushing the shark away oh my gosh and so so anyway my buddy was like virtually on the dry rocks straight away just like scrambling together and i froze actually i I was really just stunned wow and uh and i'd heard these sort of stories before but uh it happened to me and uh and so i came in and pretty rattled but i was like okay i've been surfing my whole life in this region excessively i've never had a day job i'm like always in the water i freak out if i miss a swell i'm always in the water Mm. and that's never happened to me and it happens to me just as i've committed to putting in my time and energy to the well-being of that species wow right and really doing something about it i've been pondering for a couple years sitting on the fence yeah and uh and then i just decided and boom that happens fast forward a little bit then i'm uh in japan i do a bunch of stuff there i come back home it's the humpback whale migration which is amazing every year you got the humpies coming up and down the east coast i come back from japan i'm pretty rattled i did a a sort of direct action there with a bit of sea shepherd help um that was pretty confrontational um and jolting just seeing um you know cetaceans really inhumanely treated and killed and and all of that and uh so i come home and i'm really frustrated by the experience i'm pretty emotional about it all and i go to the beach i go out for a surf this is at new brighton near brunswick heads Mm. 
I paddle out and right when I paddle out and sit up on my board, a humpback whale and her calf come straight to me and roll on their side and the mama puts her pectoral fin up in the air and I just touched her fin. Like, oh my never gosh. touched one in my entire... I don't even know anyone who's touched one while surfing. Wow. But she just rolled on her be- on her side and her white belly was facing me, put her fin up, let me touch it. And I just came unglued. It was like, it was like the moment that let me get all of my emotions and stress from the previous thing I'd been up to, uh, just let it all come out. Mm. So that happened. Uh, and then we fast forward a bit longer. Um, we're in California doing a, a sailing sort of um, conservation trip down the California coast, so a, a couple hundred miles where we sleep on the beach and sail these little tiny kayak things from town to town and hold these public events about groups in the area that are doing good stuff and mm. um and it's all around the the cetacean population there so a lot of whales and dolphins get hit by all the shipping traffic there so there's just so much humanity like the whole population of australia exists in southern california yeah. just in that tiny stretch like wild hey? there's a lot of humans so so we're there and uh, one day we're, we're sailing along and uh, a couple blue whales appear whoa and they're the biggest animals that have ever lived on the planet ever <laughs> yeah bigger than any and they're dinosaur super hard to find. yeah they're they're pretty elusive yeah. massive like 90 feet long biggest spines the knuckles on their spine are just enormous and so we're out there and uh and we have this encounter with them and there's about four or five of us in our little crafts and uh sure enough one just comes over to me and just comes straight under my little kayak and just rolls his or her spine i couldn't tell under the boat i see her eye or his eye his eye look at me and just breathes out the breath stinky by the way too it doesn't smell very good Uh, and then just rolls down and my little boat rocks like crazy and it wasn't an aggressive thing at all it was just a real eyeball moment coming to look at us and swims away and then the final one so there's just one more of these so then the final one of these sort of stories was in New Zealand whereas I was born in New Zealand a few years ago there's a big threat of mining the seafloor there for iron ore off the west coast and uh, local populations people knew a little bit about it Um, most people who knew about it didn't want it for many reasons and one of those reasons was uh the maui's dolphin or the popoto dolphin one of the smallest dolphins in the world was only down to 50 numbers like really really endangered and so the idea that you could come in with factory ships and dredge the sea floor and spit out all the tailings and then take it off to china wasn't was going to be fine and wouldn't affect them really was bullshit and everyone there knew that um, but it wasn't getting much attention, and so I, I came up with another idea to travel the west coast there from Taranaki, which is where my mum's side of my family comes from, to Piha, yep. West Beach from Auckland. Black sand. Yeah. Yep. So I was paddling that one. I was alone. I was just doing a solo paddle on a big paddle board. That was a couple, like 350 k's or something over a few weeks, and so this is another slow-moving sort of campaign idea to make sure you get heaps of time with every little community on the coast and make sure everyone knows about the story. Yeah. 
of the issue, the threat. And so anyway, I get to the day, one of the days of the trips is like November 21. This is the day where my dad took his life in New Zealand a few years ago and um, well, 10 years ago now. And so a significant day in my life and I'm paddling a stretch that goes to uh, the Manukau Heads. Pretty yep. sure it's Manukau, which is the, the head straight off Auckland on the west coast. It's a really intense patch of water. Yeah. Very extreme and it's super foggy. I can barely see the coast. I'm alone. I'm pretty emotional because it's that day in my life. And uh, I'm paddling for hours. The wind never came, which I wanted it to come because it was going to blow me the right direction. Mm. The wind never came and I knew I was going to get to the river mouth too late and so I'd be battling an outgoing tide and and I'd be really tired and I'd have to battle this stretch of water that was really um, turbulent and I was probably having a bit of an <laughs> internal freak out about the rest of my day of um, paddling and uh, a little handful of those dolphins popped up those exact ones yeah wow around me and paddled with me we were bumping my board oh and i got uh, had a gopro <laughs> on the back of the paddleboard and i got footage of it and they're just these tiny they look like tiny orcas black and white markings they're so beautiful yeah and they just came along right next to me and guided me till i got to the river or the opening of the river where the water turned dark brown and really aggro they just chaperoned me for like 40 minutes wow. that whole way and were just with me and so anyway that was an amazing experience this is like the most endangered dolphin in the world and i just got to be with <laughs> you know a good yeah. portion of the population yeah wow. on my own so <clears throat> sorry if this is long but no, it's um, amazing. but so all of those things right they never happen to me when i'm not doing that work if yeah. i'm not focused on that those animals that story those threats those imbalances um i don't have those encounters in, mm. <clears throat> in the ocean so i'm always in the water every single day i'm in the ocean um and uh you know you see all kinds of marine life but those the depth of those encounters that how much they mean to me uh, at those times is something that's happened so many times now oh, that that's magical that's that, amazing yeah it just it it opens my perspective up to the fact that it's not a one-way world we're living in yes and and the experience of somehow having those interactions at those times and and th those animals specifically being in my thoughts and feelings so much even here on land where we're divided by walls and sitting in cars and doing all this stuff away from the water mm. somehow when i go to the ocean at those times they they come and we have these experiences and it's really hard to articulate uh, i i can't and and over the years i've often just fallen back on on this line that i have in my head where i'm like the ability to not explain it the ability the inability to explain it sorry is the best way to explain it yeah like yeah if i'm lost for words then that's the best i can do 
because it cannot fit into these little words that we use for our daily life and that are very functional and and are really effective in lots of ways. But then there are experiences like those that are just so far outside of yes these words. They just can't be explained. <laughs> and yeah. I'm okay with that. Um, That's amazing. So, and I, yeah, and I've I've actually. Um, I've seen video of you swimming like a dolphin too. So you're clearly (laughs) like akin to these creatures, but that's incredible. That's the first, I've asked that question to a few people now, and that's the first time that someone has explained not a a single point in time, but a thread, like a a, a common thread throughout their life of meaningful points that has occurred. Yeah. It's really amazing. Almost feels like now if I don't have those encounters for a while, it's an indicator that I'm, I got to get my shit together and I'm being too self-centered or anthropocentric or whatever. And just thinking about human stuff too much. And so it's interesting as well that you say that all of those encounters happened after you took action. You didn't wait for them to happen and then go, Oh, that's a sign. Yeah. You took action first and you held that and then they happened. It's interesting, isn't it? It's um that makes me think of like cultural encounters between people, humans as well, and that often for you for us to relate properly, we arrive with gifts we have done forever. Mm. You come to a place and you arrive with an offering or like an understanding that you have something to give first Mm. like you don't arrive expecting to take you don't arrive expecting to be given whatever treatment you like and what i think of when i say that is of course going back to pacific island cultures polynesian cultures like if you go from one island to the next you always arrive with something Mm. to show that you're grateful to spend time there or to be welcomed or whatever yeah so i think of it this in a similar way with that with those encounters with cetaceans is that there those times my actions were like that like some kind of you know just acknowledgement that oh, I, i'm trying yeah i'm just trying i'm not saying here that those things i was doing were successful because a lot of times they were quite a, uh, a failure like the the drives in japan continued mm. um things definitely changed there after that period and the cove documentary was made and all that but it didn't stop it didn't stop it at all it slowed it while we were there they didn't do any for quite a while but um and conversations have occurred since then that weren't having um been you know happened at all before that um but there's just an effort you know just the same way as you might rock up to someone's house with a cheesecake and it's a house full of vegans and you're like oh shit i'm sorry (laughs) but it was the thought (laughs) but you're trying you're just you're giving it a shot for sure. So I feel like that's what was happening all those years was a bit of um, a bit of that going on. Yeah. Oh, there's so many more. God, wow. there's a couple. Well, I, it's funny. <laughs> I even I, I imagine there is because I even read I read an article about you and Lauren meeting, and I think you got you said you were out in the water together, and a dolphin <laughs> popped up, and that was like your first kiss <laughs> yeah. as well, right? No, it's, it's just you can't get any more cliche than talking <laughs> about this stuff and living where we live. Yeah. Um, but. I don't know. It's something that's in my life and keeps happening and is just feels it feels magical and I it's funny. I don't want to say magical because it's kind of there's a lot of baggage with that word and and maybe I I say that because 
we think these sort of things don't happen much. Mm. So the rarity of it makes it magical. But I think they do happen a lot. Yeah. But we aren't participating as much as we could because we're living from our human house to our human job in our human cars or trains or buses between. Yeah. Then we unwind in human spaces on the weekends and holidays or whatnot. Mm. So we're not having those things. We might have them with each other with things, serendipitous moments from human to human, but the experience of them in an interspecies way is pretty special. Oh. Um, and it's easily scoffed at and whatever or poo-pooed by people because it's not intellectual and it's, it's touchy-feely or whatever, but there's just no disputing the value of those experiences when you, you have them. Yep. And if we look to all of our non-industrialized cultures, that's life. Yeah. That's daily life. They see themselves as part of... They see us as part of nature, not as in our human house separate yeah. to nature. We actually are part of everything. Yeah, there's conversations is, happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it kind of... It, well, that's a beautiful lead into something else I wanted to talk to you about because you seem very much like a man of rhythms or in tune and connected to nature's rhythms. I mean, even as we were we were texting back and forth to try to tee up this conversation, you were coming back to me saying like, oh, yeah, you know, Thursday might be good, northern winds and rainy weather. Like, you know, like you're not actually planning to your calendar. You're actually going, well... That's the calendar. Yeah, that's the exactly. Yeah, that's the calendar. That's time. So we've got some great aunties, uncles that we've spent time with in our lives, both Lauren and I, and, and one of them, she's just so buoyant. She's uh, Her name's Linda. She lives over florida and and now she lives in um puerto rico but she always says i don't live in clock time Mm -hmm. yeah don't rein me into that it's so little i won't fit into that and so i think of that often but also i think of how surfing is something that can really deliver us to very i i feel indigenous ways very um just natural ways of of living and breathing and so when we spend time with first nations peoples uh so for me that a lot of that has been through the pacific through maori culture in tahiti in hawaii um there's always an acknowledgement and and especially here in australia when when people talk of country there's an acknowledgement of that first Mm. you know where are you from so in new zealand like in you're there you you introduce yourself with where you're from, you know, mm. what it is that, that uh, gave birth to you, that sustains you, that sculpted you, and then you go on to your family line and your, your, the rest of your story. Mm. But country comes first, and same here in Australia. Um, from the little that I've been so fortunate enough to learn from some uh, Indigenous friends, is that's where we start. So my way of doing that, like when we've been communicating communicating through the telefrican is that <laughs> it, i speak about the wind and i speak about the the nature of nature right now and and that's a way for me to stay actually where i am and not get too caught up in my head or not mm. get anxious about what's coming in a week's time or however wherever it is in the timeline so I really love doing that and I also love doing that because I know f- I have friends who come from city places 
and they can probably go months without knowing which way the wind's blowing yeah when high totally. tide is what it matters how much rain you've had lately and i i feel a little bit of uh, a um <sighs> lack of nourishment when i talk with friends yes. that have that yeah like uh, or a lack of belonging somewhere or feeling really grounded like really they're not tuned, tuned in to the same kind of frequency, right? Yeah, this, and it's just a missing out because there's so much to have. Con- there's so many conversations happening around us all the time mm. that are human and non-human, um, but we, we're just drowning in human stories all the time. And yep. so that's a little bit of space where you for- forget that for a moment and acknowledge, oh, yeah, south winds, they're really cold, they're really... Ooh, they're edgy, they're angular. I, I want to like wrap up and yep. and get cozy or whatever it is in your part of the world. Um, it really anchors me to know all of that and to be aware of all of that. Yeah. And so that's why when I when I say the sur- surfing has the ability to do to do that, it has that ability. It doesn't do that for all of us. Surfing's not like that for a lot of people. But for me, it's really meaningful to know that oh yeah just last night the wind went south yeah and right now it's south southwest and there's a bit of yes. rain and and you have to be in tune with the the tides and the currents and the mm. you know the the weather patterns basically yeah. and yeah. so that's how and that's how it starts and then it starts to grow into other areas of mm. your life right for me i'm i'm actually not a surfer i mean i have surfed but i, I i'm not a surfer but um for me that's definitely manifests in gardening yeah you know, and you 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 realize very quickly when you start gardening that we shouldn't be eating watermelons in winter. You know, yeah, and I know that when the mulberries come on, it's the start of spring, mm. and you know that we should be eating strawberries in summer, and that in winter vegetables like cauliflowers and leeks make beautiful soups. And like mm. you say, you want to rug up, and it has that kind of intention. And mm. planting and harvesting and eating with the cycles yep. brings you into that. Mm. Have mindset. you had times where you weren't doing that though, and you noticed definitely. that Absolutely. something was not there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, of course. Did like, you have to go through a long period of that to realize how much gardening meant to you, or um, was it quick? Yeah, yeah. No, I think as I get more and more in tune with kind of seasonal and natural cycles, then I notice more quickly when I'm not in it or when i'm not paying attention to it right it's like it's kind of like i guess meditation or a muscle or something like that you've got you got to look for it and you got to work on it you don't just all of a sudden snap into that rhythm but through years of surfing or through gardening or being in nature a lot i think you start to see and notice those things and become more in tune with it and then Mm. you can probably when you become a bit of a master someone who's probably spent 10,000 if not more hours out surfing and in tune with nature i think you can probably notice at the drop of a hat when you're not feeling like that, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, hopefully. As <laughs> a three-year-old, sometimes they get a little yeah. lost in that. <laughs> um, but it's good. I mean, when well, when we were texting, I quickly understood that I wasn't going to get an immediate reply from you sometimes and it would take a couple of days. And I was like, that's yeah. a good thing because this guy's not got his phone on his hip all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't give you my email address. My email address is... is has in it a specific couple of words to ensure that people understand that I probably won't get back to them for a while. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Um, Can we just trace back a little bit, because I think it'll help 
tie into a lot of you, you've explained so beautifully kind of where you are now but I just want to trace back a little bit your kind of earlier career in surfing um, because you you started out competitive surfing right mm. or in your early career mm-hmm. you were a competitive surfer mm-hmm. and you were kind of you know going up against some really well-known successful competitive surfers right like you were you were successful you're only on a trajectory of yeah. high success in yep. that in that game um but what was it about that what was that like, especially kind of juxtaposed to how you explained the specialness and importance of, you know, being connected to nature mm. and surfing and what that means to you? What was that like in that competitive world and kind of what led you to seek a different path? So now looking back at it, I, I understand it much more. And I guess that's what happens when you get long of tooth and gray of hair. <laughs> um, but I look back and I realize that in my childhood, um, I had great amazing family and very blessed upbringing in New Zealand and then um, on the south end of the Gold Coast but I had a pretty radical father he was he had a really turbulent life um, and in in a landscape in his mind mental health and all of that and so um, whenever anything in that area would flare up or be really challenging it was always surfing that would help me navigate through all of that mm. and then of, of course just the standard teenaged angst years of everything that we go through in that time mm. and needing rites of passage but not really having a culture yes. that guides us through that all of that totally and it was surfing that always was there for me and being in the water and having interactions with other animals and and that whole space uh, and so then when i, I was proficient enough to gain some attention from other humans about it and the sport element and getting sponsorship and all of that came in i was stoked because it was like oh wow i might be able to do this as a a job basically like just surf all the time and avoid have having to you know go to a work site or Mm. learn a trade or go to college or whatever um so i just took it and ran with it and so uh, at that point in time, it was all about competitions. The only way to judge a kid's skill against another kid was in competition. So that's what we were doing. Mm. Um, at that time, there was one man who was from the Byron region, actually, Brendan Margison. Um, Margo was his, his nickname. And he was an amazing surfer, really talented, who never got competitive success. But he was sponsored by Billabong at that time in the 90s. Billabong was huge. And uh, they just basically said, look, you just go surfing and we'll make surf movies and you'll be in them using the stuff and that's good enough. Mm. We'll give you some bucks and and uh, let's give that a try. So he was doing that when I was a young kid, like hanging around his heels. So I, I saw that, oh, that was a potential way for me to continue surfing each and every day, but not have to be competitive yeah. and so the reason i didn't want to be competitive was because i kept seeing how it complicated something as simple and wonderful and therapeutic and fun and light as surfing yeah and i quickly realized that i would probably come unglued if i lost surfing if i didn't have that as a coping mechanism for mm. being on the planet i, I would probably really struggle and I felt like complicating it with all of those things, money, fame, competition, all of that was really going to do that for me. It was just I would lose, I'd lose it. 
Yeah. You know, and you hear of this all the time with different athletes. And, yeah, for sure. And the complicating of it in that way. So, so that was really there in, in my gut. And I knew that it wasn't right. It wasn't for me. And, uh, and I remember just really sort of gingerly, shyly going to Billabong and asking to do the same thing that Margot was doing. I was only like 19. And, uh, and they said, sure, give it a try for a year. See how you go. Mm. And then you can come back to the competition thing, whatever. We'll just do a year of that. So straight away, I was like, oh, my Lord. I got like enough, just enough money to like go have some adventures around the world and I'll just see what happens. So I went and did that, went to some obscure places. Some people took some photos and a bit of footage and uh, all of a sudden all these magazines were printing stories of the kinds of boards I was writing because I was being... I was like I was let out of a box basically. Yeah. Yep. And at that point in surfing, everyone was riding the same kind of surfboard, aiming to do the same kind of surfing, and it was very generic, like super generic. Yep. Um, but it was never it was never that way. Like much before, you know, everyone was right. Like in the seventies, it was sixties. It was just outrageous. Everyone was doing completely different things to each other. It was a very creative culture. But in that time, it was very homogenized. Yeah. And so I came along with the skill to be able to play that kind of game, but not the interest. And so I went, I turned left and started writing different boards, going to different places, thinking and saying different things. Yep. And that allowed me to, yeah, keep the sponsorship thing um, going for a while. But then quickly, uh, so it was only like two years later, that's when I started seeing the things I was mentioning before about ecosystems and the places that i was returning to just being absolutely destroyed and so going back to these places and talking to local people and then telling you these really sad stories of places and cultures being eroded that's when that whole next step of like oh god i can't like keep coming back here and pretend not to know or see that yes I've got to do i have to do something in response to that education through travel and through meeting people and yeah having my eyes opened up yeah for sure that kind of spurred your environmental awareness mm. do you think um do you think that in that way like surfing is kind of almost the way that you're describing it is is kind of symbolic of our broader kind of i don't know capitalistic or colonialist mindset in that example right because mm. it was this free-spirited creative endeavor mm which then got put into a box and standardized and this is yeah. commercialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it's, you know, it's really only a few people like yourself that started to break out of that and go, well, hang on, we want to bring back that, that, that creativity. And through mm-hmm. that, you started to, to see other things, like you mm-hmm. said, these, mm-hmm. the, the, the impact that we as humans are having on this planet. So mm-hmm. it, for me, there's something symbolic in that and going, well, that's a, it's almost like a, the surfing industry is almost like a little science experiment of the way how broader <laughs> yeah. world is living. Hundred percent, right? Yeah, well, and the the there's a I think there's almost like two surfing worlds. There's the surfing industry, and then there's the surfing community. Mm. Uh, and I'm just sort of thinking of this now as I'm saying it, where it's just like this, the, there's a lot of surfers in the surfing community around the world that have been activists, artists, uh, intellects. Um, great community uh, advocates, like fantastic people working on social and ecological issues. 
I think they've they've always been there. There's heaps in just in just this area. There's a guy over the hill who's been doing that for decades. Ian mm-hmm. Cohen. He's a classic character who surfs and is always writing into the local paper and flaring up about <laughs> how little the greens are doing here and all this sort of stuff. So yeah. we've got a history of that. But in the industry, someone who was drinking the Kool Aid, like I was taking that cash and I was part of that beast, uh, and then part of trying to help it do better and you know have more of a conscience um there were yeah i was kind of the only one doing Mm, that yeah Um, so that was pretty rare but so there's a difference there i think you know and so the industry it it is this bizarre little experiment because the way it went was that before american tourism came into hawaii and started to sort of steer surfing down the, the the sport and commodified route mm. um hawaiian people and people all over the coastal people all over the world were surfing there's stories of surfing in china from 2000 years ago there's people wherever there's wow. waves people have surfed but it was hawaiians who developed this incredible relationship and social structure with surfing in there um, but there was always you know sport elements and betting and religious and very deep yeah. Um, ties to the surfing experience there for Hawaii but but yeah since the 1920s and so on from that point on there's definitely been this weird divide where there's the commodified commercialized sort of aspect to surfing uh, and how it's represented and everything and then the sort of heart of it yeah over, underneath all of that and that's why forever like man if if anyone in Hollywood ever makes a surf anything related to surfing it never works everyone always anyone who surfs sees them is like oh that is the worst that is so corny cheese ball (laughs) inaccurate like just that's that's not what surfing is you know everyone has this real clear feeling they might not be able to articulate it but a feeling that surfing is really special Mm. it's got something in there that's magic and i feel that it's it's simply it is a uh relational um mechanism not even a mechanism that's a terrible word to use it's a relational pathway between us in our bodies and Mm. the living world that we're connected to it's this great medium it's this great vehicle the vessel for us to uh, you know communicate and connect with that which is around us um and so that's why yeah all those other things like because surfing is it's it's the industry and all that is dissolving right now there's nothing there it went so hard capitalistic radical one company after another just consuming another bought out by a bigger company now they're owned by people who don't even surf yeah and no one wants to know about them and so it's really a very fascinating time for the culture and and the industry yeah i think it's it's, it's beautifully put you're right it, it, like in explaining it is that kind of connection and that bridge the the act of surfing of, to, to nature and then how how in a very short time span in the scheme of things businesses corporates the corporate world took over it and tried to commercialize it and standardize it and now as you say we're seeing that dissolve and people go back to what feels real and natural to them and I kind of then, I'd, for me, I just see it as very analogous to 
probably our, our world as a whole and going, well, mm. that, I think that's also happening mm. globally where on a, on a bit longer time scale, but really still a fraction in the scheme of things yeah. where we've, we've always lived this really, really natural connection to land and nature's rhythms and our planet. And it's only been in the last couple of hundred years maybe a little bit longer, but really since the Industrial Revolution that everything has changed. I mean, even as we sit here now, what, 200 years ago, this would have all been mm. native bush, mm. right? Um, and, and it just feels like this moment in time that we're right in the midst of what could be a massive change back mm. societally. Mm. And, 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 you know, even we, we see little things of it like, I mean... Well, the last 18 months or so has been crazy with bushfires mm. and droughts and pandemic mm. and recession and political upheaval and all those sorts of things. And I think those are all, for me, signals of people going, hang on, something doesn't feel right here, mm. which is probably similar to what maybe how you felt when you were in these surfing competitions, just kind of, this doesn't feel mm. exactly right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Know. It's it's um, it's a complicated story, the human drama. <laughs> and it's it's, you know... It's different for everyone, I guess, what your response to that is. And my response is um, a real sort of measuring of how much I interact in the human space. And I probably say that word more than most people that you talk to, human, because I'm often in non-human spaces and thinking and feeling about other species. Uh, And so... You know, when it comes to social media or news feeds, all that sort of stuff, I I very rarely participate. Mm. So I don't have my head in the sand, but I just really I'm trying to be very mindful of how much I allow in from those spaces and how much impact it has on my uh, worldview, my body, my brain. Yeah, um, and so I feel like you know human drama there's just always human drama there's always different faces and masks and whatnot and different representations of it but Mm. in general there's always been and will probably always be will be a level of human drama totally going on um and so you know my response to that is is that measurement of how much i allow in but also mostly it's in growing our food Mm. and in localizing as much as we can or in um the moments where i do engage with the human story through the work i do with patagonia um or surfing culture stuff um we're trying to have meaningful conversations it's not just you know fluff yeah it's like okay let's ask some hard questions or let's have a look at something that doesn't get much attention or like let's just make it worth the time because really i'd rather be surfing so if we're not going to surf, then let's do yes. Let's fucking do something with our time, you know. Yeah. Let's do something with it. Yeah. Um. So you know, that's my, I guess, a bit of my. What, what, strategy. Would, what would you say to someone who, um, who maybe doesn't live like that? You know, who who is only in the in the world of human spaces. Who maybe they live in a big city, or maybe they're always on the computer, and that's their job, and there's social media, and, and everything is calendarized, and and they live that life, and they're hearing you talk, and they're like, "How? That's just so foreign to me." But how? What would you say to someone like that? Like, how would you 
I guess, what advice would you give to <laughs> to try to reconnect, to I, try to step out I of that? I only ever give it if it's asked with advice. And even then, I always <laughs> give <laughs> a few one-liners about like, oh, you might want to think twice about whatever it is I say. Um, but I, I don't know, man. It's... Um, you know, it's interesting right now because everyone who has been living those lives seems to be trying to flee the city. Yeah. In this country. Yep. You know, people are turning to regional communities. They're, they're really doing something about something in them that hasn't felt right for a while. Mm. And it's being forced into action right now, perhaps. Yep. Um, so that's interesting yep. that we're in that time. We're seeing a massive push to... I mean, to gardening. Like yep. I remember at the start totally. of the pandemic, you couldn't get seeds, seeds or and toilet paper, potting man. Mix or <laughs> toilet paper as well. Interesting. Yeah. And surfboards. Surfboards are the same. People have gone nuts about buying surfboards. Surfboards, mountain bikes, yeah. caravans. Yeah. You can't get anything at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's an interesting one that that whole reaction uh, right now, and and the the move to country or the move to to leave the those met, metropolitan centers um who knows how that's going to turn out I, I feel like uh i feel like it seems to me because i'm not on social media or any of that like i hear people's conversations about what's circulating there and it seems and lauren isn't in, in there to an extent she's not fully in that world but she's there and so it seems like a lot of the conversations that are happening sound like when we personally have an illness and we get sick and you need to find a diagnosis for that illness. And so you'll go to a shaman, you'll go to a Chinese herbalist, you'll go to a standard Western doctor, you'll give it all a shot perhaps, depending on the level of ill mm. illness or dis-ease, whatever it is. Um, and so it sounds like... Th- things are happening in community all over the world that are like that like we're really looking for these a a clear diagnosis of things if it's to deal with the pandemic or you know ecosystem collapses collapses and whatnot um and you could say that there are really clear diagnoses of of what's happening especially with um ecology Mm. through global warming and everything um but the next step is the one that I'm really interested in is the course of action, mm. you know, and it's like, okay, what's the course of action? Like how, what are we going to do here? What are the changes that we'll make? So if it was a personal illness, you'd be like, oh, I'll, I'll quit smoking. Yeah. I'll probably stop having a beer at the end of every day or I'll, you know, breathe properly or I'll do more exercise, whatever those courses of action are. And on a larger scale, communally, you know, we've, we've got some changes to make yeah you know we have definite things courses of action that we need to uh really start living by and and enacting and they're all those things like you know the permacultural principles if it's growing food or or earth repair yeah you know it's it's listening to each other having proper conversations um humility you know all of our daily choices, the bigger choices too. Um, yeah, I find it really fascinating. And I, I really enjoy being a bit of a outsider 
with all of that because mm. it feels like, oh, I'll just dip in again and see. Because, <laughs> you know, when you hear people talking about social media or their phones and all that stuff, it's never that positive. Oh, I never. generally hear people just moaning about it. I'm like, well, fucking turn it off. <laughs> like, don't participate. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, grow a garden, do it for your neighbors, start spending time with your local community, and you'll find that all that stuff online and everything disappears. Is, yeah, just yeah. gone. It yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. Because you're too busy having fun on the earth with your kids or your friends' kids or whatever and yeah. doing that other stuff. And I think when you say action as well, it's action with the, with the intention of not, um, not like, how do I take an action to fix this? Like, to, you know, it's, it's like, got to come from this place of connection it's got to be real right mm. i think that's it, it's almost like so i've worked in the i guess environment sustainability space for a long time and um when it was one once when it was getting explained to me when i was learning when i was studying environmental engineering it was described as a rainforest was described as having these ecosystem services you know the reason why we should protect mm. the rainforest is because it provides this much to us you know, it provides this much dollars or this much, you know, value to us as humans. And even that is like, that is coming from a place of going, well, if it didn't provide that value to us, would we care? So I think yeah. underneath all of that is mm. that connection of wanting to connect and wanting to to protect nature and community because we truly just love it. Mm. And then from that, the actions follow. Mm. Yeah, Do you know, rather totally. than doing it because it's coming from a place of selfishness. Mm. You know, mm. we, we don't want to protect the fish because we want to breed fish to eat fish. We want to protect the fish because we love it and mm. we want to see a thriving mm. reef, yeah. for example. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that just makes me feel like it, it reminds me of when we first started talking about that one-way street thing, that that's, it's not just a one-way because when it is, if we start to approach things like that, like, oh, the rainforest it, it's provides these services, that's not a conversation. There's no conversation with the earth mm. when we're uh, looking at it that way. It's just a one-way street. It's like, what can we pull from that space that sustains us? And yeah. we'll only give a shit about those things that will directly sustain us. Totally. It's not yes. gonna, that's not going to float. Yeah. And in fact, that's how it's, it's never been like that and, until we were divided up and industrialized and then institutionalized through all of our family's generations um, since the start of all this industry. Mm. Um, before that, we'd never talk in these ways. If someone started talking like that, you'd, you would be the example for the family, the clan, the tribe, the nation that would then teach everyone and you'd be educated or something would happen that would turn that kind of illness of the mind around yep yep um but you know it's different been a different world since then it has it has but i think um i think what you're saying has a beautiful simplicity to it you know and the way that <laughs> i'm a simple man <laughs> it's not that hard is it um and i mean we, we we started at fart jokes but we did get somewhere quite quite deep and meaningful after well, that have quickly. you have you heard of um that the, that book, Sand, Sand Talk, Tyson Yunker Porter. No. Um, indigenous book that's come out recently. And, and his, like, the byline on the cover is talking about how, you know, the white fella way is to take simple things and make them complicated. Yeah. You know, and the black fella way is to take these complicated things and make them simple. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that is an incredible book. I really recommend that one to everyone. 
and uh and i i just feel like that is that really resonates for me and that's come through surfing and so for me um a bit of a broken record about things because they always circle around to my surfing experience but the reason i i do that is because with surfing we're dealing with waves we're we're dealing with a visual representation of how life moves and works Mm. in all regions so beyond this planet far far away in spiral galaxies that mirror these beautiful little waves that spin on the shore that we go and play in it all everything moves in those spiraling circular ways and so surfing is something or not even surfing just being in that space swimming through waves we're looking at and we're hearing the nature of life and you just be there with that and it is a complex thing that's happening but it's just simply beautiful Mm. you know there is you could you can look into all of the fibonacci ratios the golden mean spirals the phi ratios you can look at all of the way that our human minds have uh, articulated and picked apart that motion that spiral motion all of that and that's great um, and it's all in there when you, you sit on the beach and you watch a wave or you're in the water and you feel that wave um, it's all in there but it is just simply beautiful to be a part of mm. and and so that's something that I, I really try I often fail but I really try to stay close to no matter what yeah so you know it's a neat thing and you'd experience this with your garden you know like you see the little the little sprout just yep. spiral up and then unfurl and curl towards the totally. sun as there it is again and yeah or you hear like jeff lawton talk about all of that through you know all the plant kingdom all those motions those those recurring patterns and i i find a lot of comfort in that mm. you know that's just yeah beautiful i reckon we might land it there man cool that was spirals spirals but we started at farts and finished with spirals <laughs> well actually now and also i i do um it's funny just the other day i was mowing the property here and on my stinky freaking petrol powered zero turn but i was like i was doing the standard pattern you know like you do the yes. edge and then you work right in on it and i was like oh maybe i'll just mix it up and so i started <laughs> doing a donut basically a bogan donut in the center and then just going around it and doing these awesome. spiral patterns and it just turned <laughs> it turned my mowing experience into so much fun <laughs> And something so much more artful yes. than it has been for years. And Lauren came home. She came up. And I'm like, look, look out there. <laughs> it's just this series of spirals out in the lawn. How good. Uh, it, was, it was a funny moment. Man. <laughs> She's like, you're obsessed. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's beautiful. And that was uh, amazing. No, I just want to say um, it's awesome to hear you articulate so so beautifully and in detail but also so simply like just your lens of life which is actually quite unique in our Mm. you know 
highly spinning, high technology, <laughs> media frenzied world. Mm. Um, so that's the, the whole intention of the show is to try to understand how someone else with a very interesting and influential perspective sees the world. And I think you've explained that beautifully. <laughs> so <laughs> I just want to say uh, thanks for having me in your home and also thank you for being part of the show. I really appreciate yeah, it. Likewise, brother. It's, um, it's great. And it's a, it's a wonderful question. I think it's a really healthy experience when you get a question like this, you know, an overview moment like that. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's really wonderful. It's a good thing. I would hope people would turn to each other when they press stop or whatever and ask each other that question. Yeah. I'm sure it would be the start of a lot of great, meaningful conversation. Totally. And, you know, first thing you can do is next time you hop on your lawnmower, just do something <laughs> a bit different. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, That's likewise. Great. All good. How good. That was great. Yeah, I mean, you're a natural because... That's right. uh, good. It's fun. I had a it's whole really bunch of good. other stuff I wanted to ask you, but um, <laughs> but I waffled on. Well, no, but, out your time. but also, well, no, I also like to just let the conversation go where it yeah. goes. Um, it's a fine line, eh? Hey?